Now, friends, if you, again, have a Bible and are able to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll continue our reading at verse 35. But as I say, we want to catch the whole overview of this incredible chapter. Uh, If you are joining us this evening as a guest, we're delighted that you're here. So thankful that you could be here to celebrate Easter with us, the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stories of apparently dead people who seemingly come back to life are rare, but they are not unheard of. In February in Toronto, a newborn baby was pronounced dead after an outdoor birth. The mother wasn't feeling well and decided to go to the hospital. She didn't make it there in time and gave birth to a baby girl outside in sub-zero temperatures. The baby was taken into the hospital's emergency care, the trauma unit, but had no vital signs, put under a sheet and pronounced dead after some time. Following protocol, two police officers waited with the dead baby for the coroner to show up, and then nearly two hours later, they noticed movement under the sheet. The baby was, in fact, alive. That's amazing. And who really knows what happened? Was this some miracle of God? Possibly. Was it a misidentification of death? Possibly. Was it some kind of resuscitation after the vital signs had been lost? Who really knows but God alone? And yet, whatever it was, we love stories like that. Because babies are supposed to live. Yet that child, like all of us, whether we live seven or 70 years, will die. Its second chance at life was at most a resuscitation to a life destined for death. But the Bible speaks of something really good, a great hope called resurrection, in which the apparently dead do not come to life only to grow up, live in this world, and then eventually die again, but rather in the resurrection, the bodies of the dead rise to new life, are reunited to their eternal souls, and live forever, never to die again. Christians believe that. Easter is a celebration of that. We're celebrating that tonight. We're celebrating that Jesus, the Messiah, has come And he has died, and he has been buried, and he has been raised to life everlastingly. Paul tells us about resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, and now we want to pick up the reading at verse 35 and consider these words of hope again. Let me invite you to give your attention then to God's word. But someone will ask, how Are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. 
But there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as, if, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding. We ask that we would know the hope to which you have called us. We pray that we would know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. And we pray that we would know what is the surpassing power you have. For all your people, that power that raised Christ from the dead, work that more deeply in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we want to consider the resurrection. And I want you to consider just in broad brush what Paul teaches us here about the proof of the resurrection, 
the promise of the resurrection, the plan of the resurrection, and the power of the resurrection. In verses 1 through 11, he talks about the proof, why you can believe this. And then he talks about the promise beginning at verse 12, what it gets for you. It gets you resurrection in Christ. And then beginning at verse 35, he begins to ask questions. So what that, what's that resurrected body going to look like? What's the plan? And then at beginning at verse 50, he begins to speak of the power of the resurrection, how it shapes us and, and changes our affection and our activity. So these four things with me. In, in the first place, I want you to consider the reasons you have to believe this, the proof of the resurrection from verses 1 through 11. It's convincing and it's important, Paul says. The resurrection, he says, it isn't incidental to the Christian faith. I mean, you can't just take it or leave it, but it is foundational, he says. It's part of the gospel. Without it, he says, you don't have good news. I mean, if you haven't got a real resurrection from the dead, if all you have, for instance, is a story, a a, a fable or a metaphor, that Jesus came to life, oh, I don't know, in the hearts of his people or in the memories of those who care, then what Paul is saying is, well, you don't really have good news at all. What is the good news? Verses 3 and 4. It is this, he says. I delivered it to you as of first importance. It's these facts. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, he says, you have these events that happened that actually happened and you stake your everlasting life on these events and what they accomplish for you but suppose you came to me and said ted i've got good news for you today i I, i'd like to see you become a billionaire i would say to you thank you very much that's that's great and then you tell me your plan right well here's here's the plan you say to me i want you to get a second job And I want you to work really hard at the second job and save everything you make at that second job. And do that for a thousand years. And then you'll have a billion dollars. And I'd say to you, well, I mean, a billion dollars, that's amazing. I'd I'd love to have a billion dollars. I could think of a lot of good uses for a billion dollars. But if you think I can make a billion dollars by working a second job, even for a thousand years, I'm not so sure you've even done the math right. That's not good news. That sounds like slavery to me. But if you come to me and say, I've discovered somebody who's interested in you. They like you. They love you. They're leaving you a billion dollar inheritance then that's good news. That's great news. And this is what the gospel is, friends. The gospel doesn't tell you something you must do to purchase your way into the favor of God. The gospel tells you what Christ has already done for you. He died for your sins to wipe them away, was buried, raised, so that you could be declared right with God, as right with God as Jesus is with God. Based on the righteousness of Christ credited to you. All the good things of God, the Bible says, all the good things that are eternal and everlasting. Forgiveness 
and friendship with God. These things were purchased by Jesus, secured by Jesus, and passed on to all who believe in him. By believing in Jesus, he says, verse 2, you are being saved. So his resurrection is the event that guarantees it. And Paul wants you to be convinced that this is true. And so he walks you through reasons you ought to believe this about Jesus, that that God raised him from the dead and declared him right. He, He gives you the Old Testament on the one hand when he says, all of this was in accordance with the scriptures. He doesn't work out for you here what those scripture texts are. You might turn to Isaiah 53 sometime and Psalm 22 sometime and you'll see both the death and resurrection of a coming Messiah. But he does go on at length about the eyewitnesses here to confirm this, that you can trust it. And he begins with Cephas, that's Peter, very well known to everybody then. This is Peter who had turned his back on Jesus in his greatest hour of need. And yet Jesus appeared to Peter specifically, almost rather pointedly, as if to say, Peter, I know you failed me and you have wept for it, but I am restoring you in my grace to my good favor. We are friends. I'm for you. And you'll say, well, you know, I mean, lots of people have claimed to see visions of a loved one who has died. Maybe that's just what happened to Peter. He missed Jesus, he felt bad, and he saw a vision. The thing of it is, is this, they knew perfectly well back then that things like that sometimes happened to people. But they would use words like, it's his angel, or it's his ghost, or it's his spirit. They would never use the expression, he's been raised from the dead. They would never talk like that, and yet that's what Peter confessed. And then he turns to the 12 disciples, the group of them, and he says, uh, he says to you, well, the 12 witness to this. And you might say, well, you know, of course the 12 would witness to it. I mean, they expected Jesus to rise from the dead. Except that's not true at all. Jesus had told them he was going to Jerusalem to die and rise, and they didn't understand him, and they didn't believe him, and they weren't waiting for him on the third day to come out of the grave. This isn't wish fulfillment on their part. They weren't wishing for it. And it's not that they saw him from a distance, you know, and maybe didn't see clearly, so they thought it was Jesus and said so. No, 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 no. They walked on the road with him. They ate breakfast with him. They sat in a room with him. And Thomas, doubting Thomas, wouldn't believe until he got to touch the body of Jesus. And so there's the disciples. And then he says, verse 6, there's more than that. There were 500 at one time who saw him. And any lawyer would tell you they would love to have 500 witnesses of an event. This is so large a group, it confirms it could not have been a hallucination. Hallucinations happen to individuals, not massive groups. You might say, well, couldn't this be group think? I mean, you know. People with religious zeal see what they want to see. They believe what they want to believe. Well, I suppose you can say that. But the former atheist, Anthony Flew, an extremely well-known philosopher who died just a few years ago, said the problem with that argument is it cuts both ways. He hated that argument. Christians believe what they believe because they want to. Well, then turn that right around. Atheists don't believe what they don't believe because they don't want to. 
See, it's not a very good argument. Paul's appeal here is to, in fact, the witness of 500 people, many of whom he pointedly says are still alive, which is his way of saying, look, if you don't believe me, I mean, some of them have fallen asleep, some of them have died, but most of them are alive. Go talk to them, go ask them. They'll tell you what they saw. So there's the 500, and then there's James, verse 7. James, this is not James, one of the apostles, but this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And, and so you might want to say, well, he's family. You know, Jesus was his older brother. James must have looked up to him. I mean, what a great guy Jesus was. They probably conspired to pull off this prank. But no. No. The Gospels tell you pointedly that James and the rest of the family thought Jesus was crazy. And they, it pointedly says they didn't believe in him. It wasn't until after his death and resurrection, when they saw the risen Christ, that they even came to believe. But then, verse 8, there's Paul. This is somebody who didn't know Jesus at all during his lifetime that we know of in any way. And he hated the idea of Jesus. He persecuted the church for worshiping Jesus. He hunted down Jews who'd begun to believe in Jesus to kill them. And now here he is, willing himself to suffer on behalf of Jesus. Because the risen Christ met him on the road to Damascus and convinced him that he was Jesus, the Messiah, raised from the dead. Friends, I'm I'm simply saying to you that you have no good reason not to believe in the resurrection. If you don't believe, you don't have a good reason for it. Maybe you haven't looked at the evidence. Maybe you haven't looked at the evidence for the empty tomb. The evidence of the eyewitnesses. The evidence of Christ haters becoming Christ followers. The evidence of the explosive growth of the church that believes in a Messiah, not dead, but risen. All of these are best explained by people actually seeing the risen Christ. We have hope resting on fact, and Paul wants you to understand that. That's why he pulls out all these eyewitnesses, so so that's the first thing. But the second is this, the promise of the resurrection, verses 12 through 34. What's the promise? The promise is his resurrection guarantees your resurrection if you believe in him. His guarantees yours. He starts the argument with verse 12, uh, beginning to, to answer the person who says, well, you know, uh, there is no resurrection of the dead. I mean, we don't really know that there is one. and It doesn't really matter at all anyway, even in the Christian community. Jesus lives in our hearts. He lives in our memories. He was a great moral teacher. Let's just follow him. And Paul says, no. No, if that's the case, your faith is in vain and preaching is in vain. I mean, if Jesus is dead and that's all you've got, what a pity, Paul says. What a shame. You're a fool if you believe it. And what liars we would be, Paul, the apostles, the witnesses, and every preacher ever says. What a bunch of storytellers we would be. And what a ridiculous way to live, pretending there's life after death when there isn't. So don't say, dear friend, if you're visiting tonight, or if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're intrigued, we're we're delighted you are. 
But don't say to yourself, it doesn't really matter if Jesus is risen from the dead, but I kind of like these Christians. They've been nice to me. Isn't it sweet that they're religious? They seem to be for people. On occasion, we catch them doing good things. and It's a wonderful thing, this Christianity thing. Paul says if Christ isn't risen, we're lying about God and we're eternally endangering people's souls by giving them the false hope. That they can be forgiven for their sins through Christ when they can't if he isn't risen. Paul is saying, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. He's saying this, you're like a man out of his mind with thirst, wandering in the desert, chasing a mirage, never arriving, never finding water, hoping Where there is no hope. When we ought to have been digging a well. We ought to have been doing something else to get forgiven. If Christ isn't the way. But verse 20. Never fear. It's not a doubt. Christ has in fact been raised from the dead. Verse 20. And so he returns to this idea. And his resurrection guarantees Yours. That's the meaning of the complicated words of verses 20 through 28. Jesus, he says, is the first fruits. It's an agricultural term he's, he's using. Uh, it's, it's the first and the early part of a harvest. It's the produce that ripens more quickly before the larger bulk of the harvest comes in. And the presence of the first fruit practically guarantees the eventual presence of the bulk of the harvest in ordinary harvest occasions. And that's what he means here. Christ has been risen, and so there will be a whole harvest of people who are also risen from the dead. As in Adam all die, verse 22, so in Christ all who believe in him will be made alive. As Adam was the cause of death, Christ is the cause of life. As Adam secured death, not only for himself, but all his posterity. So Christ secured life, not only for himself, but for all who believe in him. For any and all. That's his idea here. But again, at verse 29 through 34, he, he makes some he, uh, very pointed questions to us. But by again pressing the issue, if Christ isn't raised... And you aren't going to be raised with him. I mean, if none of that's going to happen, then on the one hand, verse 29, why get baptized? Now, look, there's a long, complicated uh, um, attempt to understand what Paul is getting at here. I'll simply tell you my own view, and I hold it tentatively. And that's this, that Paul actually, by referencing baptism, means uh, baptism as it ordinarily is understood it's it's a way of identifying with something or someone it pictures being united to the one in whose name you are baptized and i won't bore you with all the reasons why i hold this view but i think he's saying why be baptized on behalf of someone who's dead meaning christ christ is dead if you believe christ hasn't been risen then he's dead why would you do that Why would you get baptized on behalf of Christ when Christ is dead? It's just a symbol of you being united to him in death. That's absurd. Why would you do that? 
We might just pull back from that and, and, and say, what Paul is saying is here, why are you playing religious games? Why are you bothering with all this imagery and stuff? If Christ isn't risen, let's go play golf, I think we might say. But, but secondly, if Christ isn't risen and you're not going to be risen, verses 30 and 31, Paul asks the question, why am I suffering on his behalf? I mean, why did I face down lions at Ephesus? Or why would you ever allow yourself to be mocked or ostracized, to be isolated from social invitations, or have family look down at you for being a backwoods, bury your head in the sand kind of fool who still believes the Bible and things like resurrection? Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you suffer at all? If Jesus did not, in fact, do what he said he would do when he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. And in three days, I will rise. Why suffer for him? And finally, verse 32, if Christ isn't risen and you're not going to be risen with him, why not go for the gusto now? If this is all there is, have at it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And maybe one day you can die and somebody who knows you well can write on your death stone at the cemetery like I saw just weeks ago. Beer, cigarettes, and wild women. If this is all there is, pick your pleasure. Why not? You see, Paul is pressing the logic here. He's he's forcing you to ask, do I believe in this? If this isn't all there is, however, what a tragedy to live as if it is and miss what's better. And this isn't all there is because the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the resurrection of all who trust in him. That's the promise Very quickly, the plan, verses 35 through 50, the second half of the chapter. What's the plan of resurrection? I mean, it sounds like a crazy idea. But if you watch late night TV, sometimes, you know, you turn on shows like The Walking Dead. Is Paul talking about, you know, people dying, coming back to life, and they're they're just, they're weird, they're crazy, they're dangerous. No, he's not talking about Frankenstein, not talking about zombies, not talking about anything like that. Don't be silly, he says. In fact, the person who asked the question, he says, "Don't, don't be a fool. It will so far exceed your wildest imaginations. And it will be better than all the best dreams you have ever dreamed. It will blow you away, he says, what it will be like. What will it be like? Well, he uses in the first place an analogy from Botany, verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And he goes on to explain. It's like taking a seed and putting it in soil. You put it in the ground and it seems to die. It seems to disappear. But if you wait, what happens? Life rises out of the ground. Different from what was put in the ground. Something like it, but different, grows from it. It's organically related to the seed, but it's far different than the seed. That's the idea, Paul says. In in what sense, we might say, is a sprouting acorn... The same as a fully grown oak tree. It's not the same form. It's not the same appearance. But it's the same organism. That's what he says the resurrection is like. You'll be as different from what you are now as you can 
as you can imagine, an oak tree is different from an acorn. But you will still be you. We know that Jesus was recognizable after his resurrection. We know the Bible promises heaven is a great reunion. We'll know one another. But it will be glorious. And then he turns to an analogy from zoology, verse 39. He says there's different kinds of flesh. There's animal flesh, there's birds, there's fish. His point is this. All these things made with the same stuff of the earth. Look at God's creative abilities to do all these different things with the same basic material. And then astronomy, verses 40 and 41, he talks about the solar system and the sun and the moon. There's one glory of the sun and there's one glory of the moon. And even stars differ from other stars in glory. Why is he saying all that? Because he's saying God can use the same basic stuff of the universe... And that's that's important because he's saying that the resurrection is is a bodily resurrection. It's not on clouds with wings and halos and harps. You'll have a body. His point is God can use all the material stuff of the universe and make this amazing variety of kinds of creations. Verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. You should expect it will be different than what you have seen here, very different and much better. The body that's sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable, he says. In this life, you know weakness, you know decay, you know injury and aging and death. But the resurrection body will be strong and healthy, Sown in dishonor and raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power with more energy and more strength, more stamina, more athleticism, more speed, more coordination, more durability than it has ever had. Verse 44, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. He doesn't mean, therefore, it's not physical. What he means is this, it's of the Holy Spirit. Just like a spiritual person is of the Holy Spirit. A spiritual mind is a mind controlled by the Spirit of God. The spiritual gifts are gifts of the Spirit of God. So the resurrection body will be a body of the Holy Spirit. Given by the Holy Spirit. Dominated by the Holy Spirit. Used by the Holy Spirit. And so he says in verse 44 and following, you will be like Christ. And we have different pictures of Christ in the Gospels after the resurrection. We have Christ fully human and in a human body, which he has. Raised from the earth, eating fish with his friends, with even the prints of his injuries somewhat remaining and visible. And yet we have pictures of Christ in the book of Revelation of such glory that John uh, bowed and, and trembled in fear of his own life because the radiance of the brilliance of the face of the Son of God in all his glory, in his glorified body, was so amazing. We know that Christ was raised in a body and he ate food. He had the ability to move rapidly, to suddenly appear in a locked room and then disappear. We're not entirely sure what that means. I want to speculate for just a minute. Might he have been multidimensional beyond the three dimensions that we know? What what if the resurrection body of Jesus was to three dimensions 
what three dimensions are to two. Draw yourself a stick figure on a piece of paper. That's two dimensions. Imagine it rolls itself up and comes to life. It becomes three dimensions. It has height. It has length. And now it has width. Is it possible that the three-dimensional resurrected body of Christ is actually capable of more dimensions than that? I don't know. (laughs) I'm just speculating. But what if? Paul is saying an entirely new mode of being has begun in the universe. Something extraordinary has happened. Let me suggest something else that's a bit speculative. I think consistent with the resurrection narrative is not the only way to explain them. Jesus goes through the grave clothes and through the wall of the cave. Not because he's lighter than he was before, but because he's heavier. The stone is rolled away not to allow Jesus to escape, but the stone is rolled away in order to allow the disciples to go in and discover that he's not there. Why do I say it might be like that? Because water is heavier than air, and water passes through air. And a steel rod is heavier than water, and it passes through water. If we might put it this way, perhaps we're saying is Jesus is more solid and substantial than he was before. The resurrected body has properties that his crucified body didn't. He's not a ghost. He's not vaporous. He's more substantial, whatever that means. It's fascinating to consider the power, strength, glory, indestructibility of the future body. C.S. Lewis said, if you could see a glorified Christian, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. It's so glorious. Well, that's the plan, somewhat speculatively and somewhat not. But then just consider this last thing. If Paul winds up verses 50 through 50. And I just want you to think about the power of the resurrection Paul says one of, the, one of the powers of the resurrection is to so grab hold of your imagination and your affections and your knowledge of the future that you can dance on the grave of death. I'm not talking about dancing on the grave of a loved one whom you rightfully loved and mourn and treat respectfully. But I'm talking about dancing on the grave of death itself. You can sing and dance over the death of death, the burial of death. That's his language here. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone is what he's saying. God has taken the sting out of it like taking the stinger out of a bee. And how did he do that? Death has lost its sting because the sting of death struck Jesus for us and in our place and he drained its venom and he carried away our sin and the law that condemned us. And so death has no power to hurt Christians, any who look to Jesus. And so death won't last, it won't win. Victory is ours. Realize perhaps you find that too fantastic to believe. But wouldn't you want that to be true? It is true. The resurrection isn't just for triumphing over death, though. It shapes your life now, verse 58. If you believe this, how should you live now? Therefore, my beloved brothers, he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
Listen, as Christians in a nation that increasingly seems opposed to all that God declares to be good and right and true, do not lose your nerve. I think the Apostle Paul is saying to us, whatever may come. I think we live in a time in America that's more like the times of the Corinthians than perhaps it has ever been in America. Paul knows what it's like to, to speak to people that live in a crazy culture. That's the Corinthian culture. And where a lot of that has come into the church and the church is just blasted and falling apart because of it. That's what the whole book is about. And yet he says there's hope. Be steadfast and immovable. Your labors in the Lord are not in vain. It lasts forever. It matters to eternity. And so you see some of the power of this, friends. You can dance on the grave of death. And you can live for something that lasts forever. But finally and in conclusion, you can live on the edge of your seat in anticipation of the life to come. C.S. Lewis again in the Chronicles of Narnia in the last book of the seven volumes of the last battle imagines the resurrection life of heaven for the children and animals who've gone to live in the heavenly Narnia. Lucy and Peter and all the rest are there. And he describes it like this. The unicorn summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right fore hoof on the ground and neighed and cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Bree hee hee. Come up further in. And further on, and he shook his mane and he sprang forward into a great gallop. A unicorn's gallop, which in our world would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now, a most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run. And they found, to their astonishment, that they could keep up with him. Not only the dogs and the humans, but even fat little puzzle and the short-legged pog and the dwarf. The air flew in their faces as if they were driving fast in a car without a windscreen. The country flew past as if they were seeing it from the windows of an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. So they ran faster and faster till it was more like flying than running. And even the eagle overhead was going no faster than they. And as they went through winding valley after winding valley and up the steep sides of hills and faster than ever down the other side, following the river and sometimes crossing it and skimming across mountain lakes as if, as if they were living speed boats. Further up, further in, roared the unicorn. And no one held back. They charged straight at the foot of a great hill and found themselves running up it almost as water from a broken wave runs up a rock at the point of some bay. And though the slope was nearly as steep as the roof of a house and the grass was smooth as a bowling green, no one slipped. And so he says, and for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them... It was only the beginning of the real story. And all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story 
which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Any who believe in Jesus will rise to eternal life because Christ is risen and you are united to him. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for this astounding gift. I pray that you would seal it on our hearts and convince us and grant us the joy and hope of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Friends, let me invite you to respond to the Lord. It's grace. We're going to stand and sing in Christ alone.